Last week, we discussed in 1 Corinthians 6, as we concluded that, and Paul is addressing a matter of sexuality in the city of Corinth, but especially in the Corinthian church. As we've already seen now through six chapters, this church is a troubled church with many troubles, many sinful problems that Paul is exposing. And um, I got a few comments after last week's sermon. Um, and some might say, can we talk about sex in church? Of course you can. Better here than on TV or somewhere else. This is God's word. Amen? And every word is inspired and given to us. And God knows us, and therefore God knows that we need to hear such things. Well, I'm reminded this week of the usefulness of all Scripture. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And yes, such sermons are necessary. And trust me, I'd rather deal with these issues from the pulpit than in crisis mode in my office. Because that has happened over 24 years many, many times. Now, maybe you weren't here last Sunday and you're like, I'm so glad I missed that sermon. Well, not so fast. As we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we will see that Paul continues this matter on the topic of sex and how Christians are to live in light of it. And this is the glory of preaching expositional sermons, right? Because some might be tempted to skip certain passages of Scripture because it's just awkward to talk about. Well, guess what? We don't do that here, right? We preach every word, every verse, because it is all of God. And this is what God has for us today. And there are some doozies coming in this chapter alone. Paul is going to address not only the topic of sexuality and marriage. He's going to talk about singleness. He's going to be talking about widows and divorce and remarriage. And some of those topics are going to be very uncomfortable based on what Paul has to say. So, buckle up. And I would just say that this is the Word of God, and we are commanded to submit to what it says. So, let's get right into it. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... Chapter 7 begins really a new section in this book of 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters, what we have here, uh, Paul has heard a report about Chloe's people, right? Chloe's people, whoever they were, wrote to Paul, there's the visions in the church, there's a man sleeping with his stepmother, there's a lot of weird things going on in this church, Paul, that you need to address. In chapter 7, he begins to write to them about questions or concerns that the Corinthians had of Paul. So the Corinthians apparently had written Paul a letter, and now Paul is saying as he begins chapter 7, I, now I'm going to address some of the things that you mentioned to me. And what we see here, perhaps this is Paul's version of five good minutes, right? Answering the Corinthian questions. Um, if you don't know what Five Good Minutes is, it's a video series that I do. It's up on our website that answers your questions in five minutes or less. Anyway, what is the first question that uh, the Corinthians have of Paul? Actually, really, it's more of a statement that Paul is addressing. Perhaps they were making an argument about what's happening in the church. And here's the statement that the Corinthians make to Paul. It is good 
for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Apparently, not everybody in Corinth felt the same as the people from chapters 5 and 6. If you remember, you have people in this church... You have one man sleeping with his stepmother, who is Paul calls out in chapter 5 and says that he needs to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's church discipline. And you have, in chapter 6, as we saw last week, you have certain people of the Corinthian church who think it's okay to sleep with prostitutes. There's, they are all over the place, right? But there's another group of people and the church that feel the complete opposite. They see all of this stuff that's going on with these people, and they say, you know what? We're just, we're going to abstain from any sexual interactions altogether, even if we are married, because sex is not good. And this is some of the belief of the people in Corinth, the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, these people are saying, no, it's not good to have sex at all, even if you are married, which is crazy, as Paul will address here in a minute. In fact, this was the prevailing belief among them, and there was even a superiority among some people in the church that were saying such things. For example, because some people had committed to celibacy, that is abstinence from sex, they felt that they had earned for themselves some special standing before God. Like they were holier people because they were celibate. And this is what this statement is coming from. Um, this is what they're, they're arguing here. And um, Paul will later on say, even say that, hey, a celibate life is probably preferred. But it's not for everybody. Matter of fact, the ESV does a good job of translating this phrase that Paul wrote in the Greek. In the ESV, as we just wrote, uh, read, um, the word actually, technically, literally is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, the phrase to touch was a sexual euphemism in the Hebrew, which meant sexual relations. So the ESV does a good job of translating that. Um, some were choosing the single life out of some kind of concept that it was more righteous to do so, as if all married people are sinners. So this is the issue that Paul is going to address. Is sex really the problem? And the answer is no. This is what the problem is in Corinth. The problem in Corinth is being single and acting like you're married. The other problem is being married and acting like you're single. They were flipping the truth around. So you have married people acting like they're single and single people acting like they're married. This is not the way God has designed it, Paul says. And this is the immediate problem that he is addressing in the Corinthian church. Some people have believed the lies on both ends of the spectrum, and it was causing great unhealth within marriages and within the church, leading people to more sexual immorality. So, and this is what Paul says in verse 2. You wrote, it is good not for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul says, no, you don't have the answer, Corinthians. The answer is not that. Yes, ideally, it is good to be married. And it is also good to not be married for some people. And he, he'll, we'll see that in a minute. 
Paul is not saying that every person should be married, that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In fact, Paul himself is not even a married man. So he would be contrary to his own advice here. That's not what he's saying, that it's a requirement that everyone should be married. And he'll address singleness later on in this chapter. What he's trying to address is that this, marriage is good and has a purpose. And one of the purposes that God has given in marriage and through marriage is the prevention of sexual immorality. And so this is the lie that they're believing. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Married life is not, is not the case for everybody. Some are single their whole life. And that is okay. That doesn't make you less of a person. Some people are divorced or widowed, and that is okay. That doesn't make you less of a person. In fact, what Paul is addressing here is quite countercultural. For the Jewish rabbis in the first century actually had a list of seven things that kept somebody out of heaven, and one of them was singleness. If you were not married, you could not go to heaven. This is what the Jewish rabbis were saying at the time. And now Paul is saying the opposite. Perhaps some of these people were being swayed by that kind of false philosophy. Another thing that kept somebody out of heaven is a woman who is barren, who has no children. So you see the craziness of the, and the hurtfulness of these false ideas that are prevailing at the time. What you don't understand, Paul is going to say here, is that sex in a marital relationship is a gift from God, and the perp- one of the purposes of it is to help you stay sexually pure. This is what he says, because of the temptation to be sexually immoral, and that's that word porneia that we've seen over the last couple chapters, which covers all kinds of sexual sin including lust or adulterous affairs outside of a marriage relationship or fornication, which is uh, sex before you're married. God has given this to you as a prevention to keep you from falling into sin. Because of your proclivity to be immoral, abstaining from sex altogether is not all that helpful. So each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Two things here. Again, Scripture confirms from this passage that a biblical marriage is between what? One man and one woman, right? And secondly, we see here that the Scripture also confirms to us that a biblical marriage is monogamous, which means one and one, not polygamous, which is multiple partners in a relationship. So to help you from being sexually immoral, which obviously is a big problem in Corinth, Right? Sexual immorality was a big problem in the city of Corinth. And here's the church, instead of being a light in the world, of, of a life that's changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, many of them are living just like the world. And this is not helpful. So, a biblical marriage is monogamous. 
and between one man and one woman. And this is why he's given you this thing. So now, now Paul addresses the role of sex in a marriage and why celibacy in marriage is wrong. One group has great license, they think, to sin sexually. And the other has what they think great license to abstain because it's not good, because they think they're going to be more righteous as it is. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to, her, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. According to Scripture, according to what Paul says here, remember this is the Word of God inspired, breathed out by God through Paul's pen. Sexual intimacy in a marriage is something that comes as a right to your spouse. See, this is the opposite that the world thinks about it, right? The world thinks about it. We're, we're born with this natural idea is that sex is for me. Sex is to satisfy me, to gratify me. That's the opposite of what this says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and the, likewise the wife to her husband. And the word that is translated right here is the word, same word which means to owe or to be in debt. This is a command to both husbands and wives. Not a command just for wives, but for husbands and wives. So what Paul is saying here, when you are depriving one another by saying it's not good, then you are withholding something that belongs to your spouse. And by doing that, you are harming them and harming you. For more clarity, I like how the New American Standard translates this verse. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The New King James says this, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, what's Paul's reason for this? Why are we in debt? Why do we owe this right to our spouse? Look at verse 4. For, that's always the key word there. Whenever you see the word for, you like look before, because this is the point he's making. For, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, the purpose of sexual intimacy in a marriage is not for self-gratification. That is selfish. And I would say that's how sex is most likely viewed by most people in the world. It's for me. No, it's not. It's for your spouse. The husband's body belongs to his wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband. That's pretty clear. And this is one of the reasons why it's sinful to have premarital sex. Why? Because you are giving to someone else what rightfully belongs to your future spouse. Would you give yourself to somebody else before you're married? You are robbing your future spouse what rightfully belongs to them in the future. In the same way why it is wrong to have an adulterous relationship even when you are married, obviously. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because you're giving to someone else what rightfully only belongs 
to your spouse. And here's the point. Your body is not something that you have the right to give away to somebody else. Only to the one that you've entered into a covenant relationship in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a covenant of marriage. And when you think about it, this is why any form of sex outside of a covenantal relationship is theft. It's stealing. It's robbing. It's thievery. Amazing. The world, one of the mantras of the world, especially of the feminist movement or the pro-choice movement today is what? My body, my choice. But actually, what do we see in this chapter? And actually the last verse in 1 Corinthians. For you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Who's a Christian? First, somebody who belongs to the Lord. And secondly, who is a married Christian? Not only do I belong to the Lord, but I belong to who? My spouse. That puts everything in perspective. And if my gift to my spouse is a prevention for sexual morality, and I keep that from, from them, from, from her. That is robbing her, robbing me of living a holy life as God has intended. And this is why this philosophy in Corinth is so dangerous and why Paul is calling it out. When both spouses see this biblically, the love and affection for the other will grow all the more. When you stop focusing on your own needs, instead of focusing on what your spouse needs or desires or wants, everything will change. Can I tell you as a pastor who's done marital counseling for 24 years that selfishness is one of the key tenets of what? Marital infidelity or marital strife or confusion. Selfishness. Usually it's, well, this is what he's not doing and this is what she's not doing. Well, you don't have to live with her. You don't understand what she puts me through. And it's always what the other person is or not doing. And what is not in focus is, what is my responsibility? What, what am I supposed to be as a, as a husband, as a wife in this relationship? When both spouses see themselves selflessly, that I belong to my spouse, everything will become more beautiful. There'll be more mutual love, more mutual respect, more mutual kindness and others. Instead, we approach all matters of marriage with this great selfishness, like it's all about me. It's all about what I want, when I want it, how I want it. No, you do not belong to you. You belong to your spouse. You belong to the Lord. Stop focusing on yourself and live a selfless marriage. This is how I can serve my spouse. And that's what brings great glory to God. Selflessness. This is what God has called us to in all relationships, really, is selflessness. Philippians chapter 2, Paul encourages us to think of others more than you do yourself, right? To be humble, to be a servant. Husbands, see yourselves as servants of your wife. 
You're there to love her, cherish her, nourish her. She's not there to serve you. And the same way, it goes the other way. And the most beautiful passage on marriage, of course, is Ephesians chapter 5, which puts us in a completely different picture. For a marital relationship, according to biblical principles, is one that is modeled after Christ and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, how does the Lord Jesus love us? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his own body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, what do we see as a picture of marriage in Ephesians 5? Sacrificial, selfless love. This is what it means, that I do not belong to myself, but I belong to my wife. This is what it means for you not to belong to yourselves. And that when you see yourself as there, and I'm giving to them what I rightfully owe them in this covenant relationship. Whether that is in the bedroom or around the house, things will never be the same. Men, we are called to a high order. <laughs> Loving our wives as Christ gave the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, I often tell men in premarital counseling, are you willing to play the role of the one who gets murdered for her? If you're not willing to do that, I can't marry you, I tell them. That sends a stroke of fear down their spine. But that's what the Bible says. And men, we, we need to repent of much. We need to repent of much. Asking these questions... Real love is not demanding things from your wife. Real love is serving your wife, loving your wife, meeting her needs before your own. And this applies to all of marriage. How did Jesus love us? He died for us. He gave himself up for us, lovingly, sacrificially. Selflessness is the key to a happy marriage. I would say probably 90%, I don't know, 90% of marriage counseling that I do with others can be avoided if people just repented of their selfishness and love their spouses. Hmm. You want to be attractive to your wife, men? Why don't you do the laundry? 
wash the dishes. How about make supper every now and then, huh? Yeah. Yeah, there's much more we could say about that, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. And, and again, this is what love is. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, which of course is, we're going to get there eventually, um, is written in the context of a church relationship, not just marriage, but we, we see what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, it, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love is. This whole topic of who owns you is really at the crux of this chapter. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A married person belongs to their spouse. That's what Paul says. So this is why each man should have his own husband. Each man should have his own wife. We're not that kind of church. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we're going to edit that later. Okay, good. That's good. That's good. Uh, I'm glad you're all listening. <laughs> this is why each man ought to have his own wife, and each wife ought to have her own husband. There you go. We got it. Um, so, look at verse 5. Based on that, if you do not belong to yourself, if you do not have authority over your own body, you belong to the Lord and your spouse. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, what's Paul saying here? Of course, these people are saying, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. We're not going to do this. This means simply this. You can't deprive one another of what is owed to the other. Except, Paul says, maybe for a limited time and you agree because you're doing a spiritual fast and you're praying and you're setting that aside for a season. But it cannot last forever. Because if it does, Satan will eventually tempt you. And you will fall into sexual immorality. Don't play those games. Another way that we could say this, and I've seen this a lot uh, in counseling, sex cannot be used as a weapon. It cannot. That is not healthy for you or your spouse. This is what the Word of God says. It cannot be forever. Why? Because Satan prowls. Oh, is he prowling? And what you might set out as a good thing can turn into a bad thing. And anything God has intended for good can be used improperly. Now, Paul says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that, we're, I wish 
that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So after saying marriage is a great thing, and you're probably sitting here uh, as a single person, maybe widowed, divorced, you're saying, okay, where does that leave me? Well, what is Paul saying here? After saying that marriage is a great thing and each person should have its own spouse, he, what does he say? I'm not commanding you to be married. In fact, I'm not married, and I wish more people were like me. Paul was single, and he says that singleness is itself a gift from God. Just like marriage is a gift from God, singleness is a gift from God. Some might be saying, I don't want that gift of singleness. Well, if you don't want that gift, you probably don't have that gift, so it's okay. Um, Paul could live his life as a single man, remain sexually pure, and have the freedom to serve the Lord in ways that he could not have if he were married. He says that later in chapter 7. And this is why, even after saying that marriage is a great thing, he says, for the sake of your own spiritual health, for the sake of your own um, worldly trouble that could come as a result of being married, financial difficulties, all that stuff. I wish you were like me. I have such freedom. And Paul could not have done what he did in the New Testament, traveling around the world on three different missionary journeys, if he were married. Paul knows the great sacrifice of serving the Lord and the freedom of not being, uh, of being single brought him and spreading the gospel. That's what he's saying here. In verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And again, this goes in a world that says what? If you're single, you can't go to heaven. No. If you're unmarried, if your spouse has died, it's a good thing to be single. You're not less of a person. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Some might see singleness as a curse. Paul saw it as a blessing. A blessing that some people can endure as a gift from God and other people cannot. So therefore, even though it's, I'm probably going to recommend, Paul says, that you remain single. If you can't, then get married. It's fine. That's a gift God's given you. Get married instead of burning with passion. The purposes of marriage, what are they? Well, there's really three main ones. Companionship. Right? We see it is not good for the man to be alone. That's what God says of Adam. So he made a helper suitable for him, Eve. Companionship is good, one of the blessings of marriage. Secondly is procreation, having children, be fruitful and multiply. That's a blessing of marriage. But even then, not all couples who are married can have children. And that's Okay. Sexual intimacy, of course, mentioned in this chapter, in accordance with God's design and blessings in a covenanted relationship, is one of the purposes of marriage, to keep you from sexual immorality. So be married. It's a gift and good and has benefits. It's not for everybody. To be single is a gift and good, has benefits. Not for everyone. So then let us have Christ-centered marriages. Let us have selfless marriages. 
Let us have Christ-centered singles that are striving for holiness, knowing that marriage is always an option if the Lord brings it your way. Let us live in selflessness to one another, husbands loving your wives, wives submitting to your husbands, as Ephesians 5 said. For this kind of complementarity that God has created in marriage is good. God has created men a certain way to be men. Can we let the men be men? I know that's a bad thing to say in 2023, but I'm going to say it. Let the men be men. Amen? Amen. Can we let the women be women? Another bad thing to say in 2023. Matter of fact, what is a man? What is a woman? I mean, that's a whole other question, but that's not this kind of church either, okay? We know who men and women are. No matter where you are, and I know this is a painful, this could be a painful topic for some who wish to be married but aren't. Or for those who are married and are in a very difficult marriage. I understand. Because of sin, these things are not easy. But this is how God has designed it. And we pray for repentance and transformation and reconciliation and for blessings to come to your life in the way God has designed in this way. To go outside that box and to do things your way will only bring harm and destruction upon yourself and other people. The goal of your life is not to be happy. The goal of your life is to be holy. And we must do so in accordance with the will and word of God. And when you are seeking holiness, then that's where true happiness is found. And I know that there's probably the majority of this congregation, if not everyone in this congregation, that has sinned sexually. Whether it be in the lust of your hearts that nobody knows about, or whether it be in ways uh, physically that you have done that, let me encourage you and remind you again of the gospel. We can sin sexually and have that haunt us our whole lives. But remember that in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are a new creation. You are not washed up to be thrown away. You are in Christ and made new and holy and are being sanctified. And see yourself in your Savior. Sin brings consequences to our lives. But the gospel, in spite of those consequences, brings healing, brings a hope, brings a future, brings a new identity. And there's so many more good things to say, but we'll save them for next week. May God bless you as you pursue holiness in this area. Whether it be with the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage, I pray that you would see what you need to do in your own marriage Perhaps one of the key things today that we could say to all of our married couples is how is selfishness ruining your marriage? How is selfishness hurting your marriage? That could be expressed in many different ways. I pray good conversations will come as a result of this between husbands and wives there would be repentance and restoration and healthier marriages to follow. Let's pray. 
Father, we are so grateful for your gospel. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in your people through your word. So we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, which deals with the issues of sexuality and marriage and many things that people might find awkward or uncomfortable. But Lord, you've given us these verses and scriptures for a reason, for a purpose, to transform us, to make us holy, to sanctify us. And we pray, God, that you would accomplish all your purposes through and in it. We pray for those who are in sexual sin right now, that they would repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. We pray for those, God, who are still haunted by past sexual sin. We pray, God, that you will restore their mind and their heart and get them on solid footing, knowing that in Christ there is no condemnation for them. They've been declared righteous, and they are a new creation in him. I pray for our widows. I pray for our singles. God, there's so many mixed feelings and emotions in this room, desires. God, I pray that most importantly that we are seeking you, that we're seeking uh, your glory in our lives, that that we're seeking repentance in our lives, that we're patient. Father, if you do have somebody for them in the future, then great. Show them. By your divine providence, bring those to pass. And Father, I just pray, God, that you would just be with your people this morning. No matter what the situation, we know your word will work itself out for your good pleasure and will. Sanctify us now by your truth. Your word is truth. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a closing song. God bless you. If I could help you in any way, please see me after the service. And... uh, Let's sing to our God, come thou fount of every blessing.